Hey, Big Biology listener, we're doing a fall fun drive, a gentle reminder that we're a nonprofit and we rely on donations to keep making the episodes you love. We'd encourage you right now to make a donation. You can make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org or set up a recurring donation at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bigbiology. Thanks. Teach Me Biology is an A-level or equivalent biology podcast hosted by sisters Rhea Corbett and Sarah Matthews. Rhea is a former science teacher of 16 years with a biology specialism. Sarah is her younger sister, and she is the student. Rhea is teaching her, topic by topic, to provide you, the listener, with an audio revision resource. Each episode is divided up into sections, including teaching new knowledge, exam questions, Rhea's roundup of the important information, and Sarah's takeaways from the episode. This format ensures there's lots of recap in each episode. And they have a monthly, wider reading recommendation, which can be a podcast, book, or a blog. Rhea and Sarah hope you can incorporate them into your learning journey. Dip in and out, listen to the episodes on your weaker topics, or use them as your biology bible. There are currently 81 episodes and two bonus episodes available. Learn more at teachmescience.co.uk. As you may know, ants are eusocial. This means that in many species, related individuals live and work together in a single colony. Often they sort themselves into different castes, and each caste carries out one or a few different tasks to support the whole group. Amazing. Casts also differ in size and shape. For example, some species in the genus Phydoli have evolved two worker castes, minor workers and soldiers. Minor workers look like your typical ant. The soldiers are bigger and have disproportionately large heads and mandibles, which they use to defend the colony and break up large food items. There's even a handful of species within Phydoli that have an additional super soldier caste, which boast enormous heads. Okay, question. How do you get different castes from what are basically the same eggs? It's all thanks to developmental plasticity. Developing larvae sense and respond to local environmental cues, things like how much they get to eat and the kinds and amounts of pheromones put off by workers tending to them, which then determine whether they grow into minor workers or soldiers. Raji Rajakumar, a professor at the University of Ottawa, studies Phydoli ants and their ecological and evolutionary developmental biology, eco evodivo for short, to better understand the interactions between development, genes, and environment. In a 2018 paper in Nature, Raji and his team focused on the role of an unexpectedly important transient structure in soldier ant development. Here, we need to do a quick detour into insect development. Ants are part of a much larger group of insects, called the holometabolous insects, that undergo complete metamorphosis. In holometabolous species, the larval stage typically is specialized for feeding and growth, while the adults are specialized for dispersal and reproduction. Unsurprisingly, those two kinds of tasks can require very different morphologies, which is why larval lepidoptera caterpillars look and act nothing like the corresponding adults. Moths and butterflies. Okay, big question. Where do adult structures come from during metamorphosis? The answer is, drumroll, from imaginal discs. Multiple small groups of cells that are basically set aside during larval development, but that grow rapidly during metamorphosis to take on the final adult form. There are imaginal discs for wings for legs, for antennae, for mouth parts, etc. And side note, they're called imaginal discs because an old term for insect adult is imago. So imaginal discs are the groups of cells that will form the adult structures. Now, 
Back to Fidoli. In some developing larvae, such as the female and male reproductives, these discs will eventually develop into proper wings. But soldiers are wingless, and so after a brief period of time during development, the wing discs disappear. The larvae of minor workers don't grow wing discs at all. In this episode, we talk with Raji about a clever set of experiments that he and colleagues did to figure out the roles of transient imaginal discs in developing casts of ants. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. dig into some details of this really awesome 2018 paper that you had in Nature uh, on ants. But um, before we do that, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and your field, EcoEvo, Devo. Like, what, what is that and how did you get into it and why, why is that important? Basically, when I was an undergrad, I went to a primarily undergrad teaching first uh, university, a little bit more in the realm of the liberal arts type of comparison to R1 institutes in the U.S., for example. And I wanted to try to find some research opportunities during undergrad because I wanted to see science in action as opposed to, you know, memorizing it in class. And, uh, you know, I stumbled upon the Abugif Lab, uh, Ahab Abugif's Lab at McGill University uh, in Montreal, another university where in the city that I lived in. He was just starting his lab and I went to go visit him. I didn't know what labs would really look like, leave alone a brand new lab, right? And as we all know, as you're starting a lab, you basically have pretty much nothing, just an empty room. But he had these Tupperware boxes on the shelves. And I was like, okay, this is really weird. Like, I, that's not, I'm expecting like cool equipment, data, whatever. And he's got these Tupperware boxes I put my lunch in or something, right? And he pulled one down and he opened it up. And inside was this like microcosm, this little mini universe that is what I f- soon found out was this little society that ants form in the form of colonies. And it wasn't just any ants. It was this species called Phydoliaria, which if you see a colony of these, they basically look like dinosaur ants, essentially. It's, Crazy, huge ants related to work that we'll talk, hopefully get to a little bit in this interview later, uh, where they have these workers and soldiers and super soldiers. I was like, just phenotypic variation. What is this? I was very mechanism-driven, molecular cellular biologist in training and in school. And I was like, this is crazy. These are the phenotypes that are possible, right? And so he sat me down and taught me two quick lessons that got me into Eco Evo Devo, which is first, these ants, although they look completely different, it's actually the same genome, the same genotypes that can give rise to these alternative phenotypes. And it's through what's called developmental plasticity, how genes in an environment interact during development that can generate all these diverse phenotypic variants, all these variations on the theme of their phenotypes, of their body plans and other traits that you see amongst different individuals. And so in that one false swoop, I learned that like, wow, development is that landscape that the genotypes traverse through to get to that phenotype and the genotype phenotype map. And it's, it's not a straight line. It's not like learning Mendelian genetics and, you know, eye color and hair color and stuff you learn in genetics. It's more complicated and even more nuanced is the fact that the environment can bias and direct and redirect the way uh, cells and tissues and things during the development process actually go to. And in this case, on an organism level, rather than, say, determining what cell or organ or tissue you become, it's on a whole individual level. What cast you become, these workers and soldiers and super soldiers. So my first time visiting his lab, and this was back in 2000, the end of 2004, okay? So when EcoEvoDevo wasn't even really a thing, you know? And I was in shock. Extreme amazing phenotypes. It's how the environment or ecology acts on development that could potentially give rise to many different evolutionary outcomes. So that's kind of my experience getting into it in a nutshell. Do you, do you think that eco evo devo is the end, or are we going to have another modifier of some sort? Because development, fine, 
evolution evo devo was all the rage when i was a graduate student which was just a little bit earlier than than um you know 2004 you were talking about but eco evo devo i've never been able to get my head around the difference of eco evo devo and evo devo how, how are they different are they importantly different it sounds like it well so here's the thing to me mary jane west everhart's uh magnum opus that she wrote in i don't remember exactly if it was 2005 or 2003 developmental plasticity and evolution is that the one and exactly developmental plasticity and evolution that's one of my favorite books so yeah and to me i actually i don't care if it sounds biased but i'll be as bold to say that we'll look back 50 years from now and it'll be second only to the origin of species to the way we think about evolution and how it unfolds and you know if you look at its citation rate it's a book about developmental evolution of plasticity, and yet it's citation levels as, like, say, Coin and Orr's classic book, you know, in more mainstream eco-evo and evo spheres. And I think it's really only a matter of time. And it's, again, it's because it's this really key missing link about the role that the environment, not just as a selector, not just as playing a role in, say, natural selection, but a role in generating variation. So it's in both, and it's coming from both those directions. So through developmental plasticity, you see that during development, you can have the environment interact with developmental processes and give rise to variations in phenotype that can be raw materials for natural selection to act upon. And so in many ways, I feel that her work and, and work that preceded it, that inspired it, and work that has followed it, I think that role of the environment and how it interacts with our genes and with cells and hormone production and epigenetic mechanisms during development and in adulthood and your physiological processes that really help connect the dots of how you go from a mechanistic house science that is developmental genetics, developmental biology, to a more holistic, larger scale why science, like as to quote, you know, Ernst Meyer kind of thing. I think it's just that how, how who you're talking to and finding a common wavelength in the language. So when you think about variation, and to me, that's one of my favorite words in biology, variation. And if you're talking about, say, variation of phenotypes, on one side of the coin, you can think about adaptive variation that can be selective upon in an evolutionary context. But on the other side of the coin, you can think about it in a maladaptive context, not just in evolutionary biology, but in a biomedical context as well. You think about the developmental mechanisms, physiological mechanisms, molecular cell biology, all of these levels of regulation, so many things can be tinkered with perturbed, can lead to, yes, adaptive variation that can be selected upon for evolutionary outcomes, but also can be the basis for disease, the countless diseases that we, complex diseases we have. Yeah. Plasticity at the at the heart of, of everything. Yeah. So I'm I'm completely on board with that book. I, I don't know if I'd go so far to say it's second to um on the origin of species. Yeah, but, that's okay. but not that I have a replacement. <laughs> I just have to with I would have to think a little bit harder about it. But um this is a conventional question with these sorts of things. What are the key empirical discoveries that substantiate, you know, the platform that, that Mary Jane has in that book? I mean, what what are the data that ground the sort of new ways of thinking about eco evo devo and evolution in general? I mean, you know, I guess it depends on how you come at it. Even going beyond just, say, talking about classical experiments or anything like that, it's just whether you're, say, a plant researcher. And, you know, for instance, plant biologists have been the pioneers of plasticity work way long before people working with animals. I mean, just because, you know, you go back to early 20th century, amazing plant biologists studying how, you know, in different climates, the same species of plant how different phenotypes you'd see arise depending on, say, they're at the top of a mountain or mid-level of a mountain or at the bottom, different temperatures, different elevations. And, uh, you know, of course, in plants, they can't just pull up the roots and go walk around and, you know, evade things and deal with, you know, limited resources and, and adapt, right, like we can. And so they're highly plastic, and lots of plant research over the last century 
have demonstrated that like they might have genotypes when they emerge, but they can interact with their environment in very extraordinary ways. Um, now that's true for all kinds of animal research that has also uh, unfolded. And I think that, you know, the discovery or, or, or findings of how on mechanistic levels, how hormones and non-genetic processes like epigenetic mechanisms, including histone modifications, microRNA biology, uh, DNA methylation, so on and so forth, these are non-genetic processes, chemical modifications that could be mediators of uh, the environment to translate a changing environment and how an organism adapts to that environment. You know, you can just pick various different examples across different systems to show that, like, yes, you know, plastics is important. I mean, if you go in a retrospective 2020, you know, when Darwin was looking at ants and his origin of species and his extended larger drafts of his extended book that was Origin of Species was supposed to be the abstract for Once Upon a Time. When he's talking about ants and he's looking at army ants and other species of ants, he'd look at a colony and see how different the individuals are within the same colony, the same family, so to speak. And he was, he'd actually say in his writings that this, it almost seems potentially as like a fatal flaw to my theory uh, of natural selection, because how could you, how could it be that you have a sterile cast, the worker cast, propagate, you know, all of these different phenotypes compared to, say, the reproductive cast that look completely different. They look as different from each other, not as just different species, but different genera, different subfamilies, so on and so forth. And, you know, like fast forward, you know, it's through plasticity mechanisms, whether it's hormones and development, epigenetic mechanisms and other things. And I think it's just findings that we've had over time of how you can have single genotypes uh, and, uh, you know, at the starting point in an experiment where geneticists would try to like deal with, you know, control only one variable at a time and make sure the environment's stable. Well, when you do take genotypes and you do vary the environment and see different outcomes in plants and animals, it, the writing's on the wall, you know, that plasticity is actually very universal feature across, you know, the organismal world. And it's fascinating and super exciting to study uh, and could have everything from evolutionary to biomedical relevance. So you're, you're sort of anticipating my next question here, but I want to turn more solidly now to ants and ask about you know what what you view as the utility of ants for answering some of these big eco evo devo questions. And, and I get it that there's also just a lot of passion for ants here, and you had some sort of <laughs> yeah, early, ants. you know experiences in the lab. Why and ants? I myself do a lot of yeah. insect physiology, so I get it. But like in terms of like thinking about ants as a system for answering some of these big questions, why why are they good? Oh yeah, okay. Well, so first off, disclaimer, I'm obsessed with ants. So some of my things that I might say right now might be a little bit uh, biased about to justify why they're a great model for EcoEvoDevo, but, you know, just keep that in mind. To zoom out a bit, ants as an organism are incredible. You know, the paper in Proceedings of National Academy of Science just came out saying that there's something like 20 quadrillion ants on this planet, right? So that means that there's like, for every one human, there's 2,500,000 ants approximately. So yeah, it's crazy. So if when you're a kid and you're like taking a magnifying glass and burning an ant or something like that, well, guess what? There's another 2,249,999 waiting for you, okay? <laughs> they're coming for you. <laughs> exactly, in your dreams. They're haunting you in your dream. So, you know, they're everywhere. They're ecologically dominant and incredible, fascinating. They've independently evolved societies like we have. You know, just people have studied them over the centuries. You know, they see ourselves in many ways. And, you know, when you study them long enough, 
I see in humans ant things, and you kind of like anthropomorphize oh. everything that you see that we do eventually. Yeah, sorry, dad, dad joke. Hey, the, you really, you just got a gold star from art. That's his favorite. <laughs> um, and so, well, you know, they're everywhere. And I was telling my class the other day, my microbiology class of students, that they're in pretty much every continent except for Antarctica. And then one student raised their hand and heckled me and is like, well, that's really funny. I was like, why? Well, it's called Antarctica. You'd think you'd have ants there. And I was like, all right, I'll keep that one. I'm putting that one in my pocket. I'm keeping that for my kids or something. But anyway, so they're they're everywhere. They're super awesome. There's 15,000 plus species around the world. And every one of those species have their own story, their own beautiful life history, their own fascinating characteristics. But then what what is it? What is it so awesome about them? Well, there's two major hallmarks I feel that are, are worth noting. One is obviously the cooperation you see within their societies that they form. As I said, they've independently evolved sociality in an even extreme form where some individuals, they divide reproductive labor. Some individuals are castes that are, are to meant to reproduce and workers, uh, worker castes. So the queens, for example, and the worker castes that uh, are predominantly sterile and do non-reproductive tasks like we're foraging for food, taking care of the young, so on and so forth. And so cooperation that you see and optimized amongst the cast in those colonies, that's a really important thing that potentially has enhanced or enabled that diversification and awesomeness, ecologically speaking. But then the other thing is what is developmental plasticity. How do you make all of those specialized morphological casts that you see within the colony? And it's that their developmental process is very sensitive to the environment and environmental cues, abiotic and biotic cues, as such that through during development, the same genome, the same genotype can uh, experience different environmental cues at certain optima and can go on to become one cast or another. So they're insects, so they're awesome as a given. But what you're saying yeah. is that like of the insects, they're sort of the masters of translating environmental and social cues into plasticity that gives different forms within within the colony. Well, I'm going to refrain from saying that the master in case someone else will will feel uh, that's a little subjective. But I will say this, they are a fantastic system to study gene by environment interactions. If you want to know how development and your genes and your genome can unfold in a dynamic way in response to environmental variation, this is a fantastic system. Because, you know, when you think about, like, say, cell differentiation, you have a stem cell and it can go on to differentiate into cell type A or cell type B. They look really different. They behave functionally different in the tissue, so on and so forth. And there's different growth, environmental cues within your body, growth uh, factors, so on and so forth that stimulate that. Well, this is a whole new level in the ant world. These aren't cells differentiating and determining and differentiating. These are whole individuals. These are casts that are determining and differentiating. These aren't cells going down what's called Waddington's landscape of being pulled through the developmental process to have different phenotypic outcomes. These are whole individuals that are experiencing the developmental landscape and exposed to environmental variables and becoming a queen that is completely different than soldiers and workers, for example. So, Raji, I mean, I don't mean to be antagonistic, but to me, the body plan of ants among the insects, and even if you think about things like extreme metamorphosis in the case of, say, butterflies and moths, like that is a whole other amazing circus act of plasticity. That if you look at the ants, I mean, fine, these giant super soldiers, that's all cool, but it's an embellishment on a theme, right? So my my argument would be, I don't know, my perspective, my naive backbone bias perspective <laughs> would be that yeah. ants are a simpler version of plasticity. Does that even make sense? I mean, is that uh I guess I guess it depends. So when I when I'm thinking about plasticity, I'm thinking about variations on the adult body plan. So if you're looking at the butterflies, you know, of a given species. 
yeah, there are seasonal morphs and they're, they're beautiful. You know, you see the different wing morphs and how they deal with the different surfaces of the wings for, to deal with sexual selection and natural sexual and simultaneously fantastic systems. But uh, in terms of adult forms and in terms of the same genotype giving rise to different phenotypes, if you look at an ant colony, yes, there are some ant species where all the worker ants look identical. You know, if you look at the common sidewalk and like Tetramerium immigrants where they're having these ant wars whenever the, when the seasons are changing, you see a bunch of ants like killing each other on your sidewalk. Yeah, they look like ants and you're like, okay, cool. And you keep walking along. But have you seen some of the ants I've seen, whether they're leafcutter ants or army ants or trap jaw ants, just amazing, extreme elaborations, as you say. So it's how far they push those elaborations on the theme. And the fact is you see what is the body plan. You see what is the theme they're elaborating upon. And so you can have that be your, your ground state that you're trying to investigate how have they elaborated and you can look across many species in a high resolution comparative framework to see how do you transition from in subtle ways to more elaborate ways varying those morphological phenotypes and then try to trace it to what are the developmental and molecular mechanisms that have facilitated those transitions and we're just talking about morphologies like people study ants also why ants the ecological context there are ants that like form their own agricultural systems their ants have their own sewer system every ant colony has their own cemeteries that they do for quarantining they're recently dead their chemical communication challenges are linguistics you know in terms of the way we've evolved means to communicate with each other i can go on and on about how cool ants are as an organism <laughs> Okay. We we can tell you like ants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you add all that beauty, you add all the beauty of the organism beyond just their morphology. Um, it's a, a wonderful context to to you know study your, your organism because you know you might change your morphology in a lab, you tinker with things and all of a sudden you make their jaws different or their eyes different or their heads different. But then you could be talking to uh, an animal behavior person and they're like, oh, how do they behave? Do they behave differently? Do behaviors couple or get decoupled with these morphological variations that you're inducing in lab or you see in the wild, natural variation? And all of a sudden, you start connecting to beyond the morphology in a more extended phenotype context. And that more colorful life history context becomes uh, something that is directly relevant to developmental plasticity research You know that I'm doing. You know, it sounds like a lot of this stems from and maybe is dependent on the fact of the being eusocial and colonies acting like super organisms. And you, you sort of made you know, the allegory between individuals in an ant colony and cells in a body. And, you know, in the same way that a, that a stem cell can become many different phenotypes of cells in our own body, you can get individuals becoming very many different kinds of individuals. And so in, in a sense, it seems like you're leveraging this idea that you're getting extreme plasticity from the same genotype over and over because you're getting this diversification of body forms within this superorganism, and yet somehow because they're individual ants, you can deduce, you know, interesting rules about how forms come to be and how allometries or mechanistic basis yes. of the underlying allometries. Is that a fair yeah, way actually, to put that? Yeah, I'd actually say that as even better explanation of what I wanted to say. You hit a very key buzzword, the superorganism. And yes, you know, you brought up butterflies and contrasting. So those effectively cells within the colony, right? It's like the colony behaves like an organism. So just to take a step back, so the queens are basically the individuals that are now taking on the reproductive roles of the colony. And so in some species, they can make hundreds of progeny a day. And in their lifetime, they can make millions. And the reason for that is that as opposed to the workers that are well, predominantly sterile and live for on the range of, say, months, the queen can live on the scale of decades, so we're not just talking about an order of magnitude of lifespan or longevity differences. We're talking about orders of magnitude of difference. And again, same genotype, 
different end phenotype outcomes. So if you're, say, now you're an extension of developmental plasticity, interested in longevity and health span, lifespan stuff, or, uh, or reproductive differences, these are uh, individuals specialized in a colony, like cells specialized in our bodies that act as one organism, where the queen is like the germline. And the workers are like the soma, the somatic tissue that differentiates. So, Roger, you're probably the, the, the best guy to ask this question to, something that's been in the back of my head for probably since I was in high school. The number of cell types in the typical vertebrate, because this is my bias, is, is on the order of like 200, something, something like that, right? What's the maximum number of casts in the most differentiated insect? Because it's not even close, right? Talk about orders of magnitude. Why is it that within bodies you get so many cell types, then we get casts? Yeah, that's a fantastic. This is another picking picking on your plasticity argument. No. Sorry. No, and actually, that is a that's a very nice perspective to take in terms of thinking. Because you know, for me, one thing about developmental plasticity and morphospace, phenotypic space, right, and how much you can explore. One notion that I've really liked to think about sometimes is. What is, you know, one way to think about it is like forbidden phenotypes, essentially. Like what, what are constraints? What are, what is possible and what isn't possible, both experimentally and in the natural world, right? And yeah, it's true. That is quite a distinction, especially for that analogy. And of course, I am fully phrasing it as an analogy, although if you push me to limit, I can make it almost sound like I'm, I'm thinking they're one-to-one. So to come to ants, I'm not a leafcutter specialist, but I, I remember hearing someone say on the order of sort of like 16 specialized you know, subcasts of worker of the worker caste system. Wow. Okay. And that's the other thing is that in ants, it's not just morphological caste. There's also the behavioral caste side of things. So you can have individuals that look identical, but they really do form essentially different behavioral castes within the colony. They really carry out. They specialize in specific tasks that have to be done, jobs in the day, and the colony. So if you multiply morphological caste by behavioral caste, and some have even argued, gone on to argue like physiological caste, which is a whole other kind of view. Technically speaking, there's a lot of diversity. Is it on the order that you were describing in our human body, the way, you know, the cells that we have? Maybe not. But then again, we've studied the human body for a long time as humans investigating humans. And, you know, the more we investigate ants, the more we find the subtleties, the specialized cell types, so to speak, the specialized cast. Right. Well, and I think that crypticity is a good way to think about it because it could be the morphology is the most conspicuous. That's, you know, naturalists were the first biologists. So maybe as we dig more into even, you know, the regulation of epigenetic marks, there could be diversity in who can differentiate best, fastest, most efficiently, reversibility, all of this kind of stuff. A lot of more latent plasticity than we can we can necessarily see. Just uh, one more extension, food for thought, uh, extending the superorganism is that not just how you see them carry out tasks within the colony, but also how they communicate with each other. So there's obviously the classical, our understanding of chemical communication, right? That these cells in the colony, so figuratively speaking, these ants are communicating with each other. But recently in the last five, six years, you know, a colleague of mine, Adria Leboeuf, has discovered that actually ants communicate in a way that we never expected. So they basically communicate through social fluids where they use their mouths to trophallax, transmit fluids between adult to adult and larvae to adult and adult to larvae kind of thing. And in those fluids, which we long thought were just uh, nutrients, you know, that they're feeding each other or maybe information from where they just were kind of thing. It turns out that there's metabolites, proteins, hormones, microRNAs, and countless other things in this social fluid, as huh, we're cool. as she's calling it. And so... It's like an ex- it's like a circulatory system that's actually interconnecting this society. So yes, it's becoming more and more of an organism as as we even as I even thought, you know, starting off. It's pretty crazy.
so um, I think this is a good segue into your paper, this 2018 paper in Nature, which examined the sort of origins of some really interesting morphologies in different castes, so minor workers, soldiers, and super soldiers, and then these just astounding developmental origins of those of those morphologies. So maybe let's just get into it with a little bit of terminology first. So maybe just describe what what's a minor worker, what's a soldier, and what's a super soldier. Right. So uh, Fiduli is the group of uh, the genus of ants that uh, paper is predominantly focused on. This is a hyperdiverse genus. There's over a thousand species globally. It's unlike most other genera in in the animal world in that regard. And uh, of those thousand plus species. A major hallmark is the evolution of a soldier caste. So this is a morphologically specialized caste, also behaviorally speaking as well, where it uses its disproportionately large head with uh, special uh, soldier-specific muscles in its head and really large mandibles to both attack you know, predators and competitors and also to process food. Like there's some species of Fidoli that, that are seed farmers, for example. Minor worker caste, they're smaller. They look a little bit more typical ant-wise in terms of body proportions. Uh, and they forage for food and nurse the young, for, just as examples of things they do. Now, the super soldier caste is something where, you know, there's over a thousand species, less than 1% of them actually. So about eight, potentially nine now, uh, species have an additional caste where their heads are just humongous for their body size. They're huge. Uh, again, allometrically disproportionate to their body, even compared to the soldiers and then the soldiers, the workers, and so on and so forth. So they're their own very discrete cast within the morphospace of how their heads, for example, scale to their body size. There's still very little known about uh, how they're specialized in colonies in the wild. One of our colleagues, uh, Bing Huang, who was actually an author of earlier work, the paper published in Science, that we actually first described the evolution and development of super soldiers. He had observed in the wild that in the species Fidoli obtuso spinosa, which has a super soldier cast, they actually live in the desert. And as opposed to a usual ant colony where you see, you know, an ant hill and a little hole at the top, I'm talking about it in a cartoonish way, because this is, that's really how we kind of imagine them. These ants like live in like rock crevices in the desertous areas and these more open, vulnerable entrances to the colony. And they also live amongst what are called army ants that can come divide and conquer, destroy everything around them, resources and other insects. And so you think they need soldiers, but in fact, they have what are called super soldiers, where when they're under attack by, and they're detected by scout army ants coming to the entrance of the colony, the workers and other individuals in the colony will go into retreat into the colony, and then they'll recruit all of these super soldiers to the nest entrance, and then they band all of their gigantic super soldier heads together, like a Spartan shield, essentially, and block the army ants from coming in. And then they disband, start attacking the army ants, rubbing their abdomens on the floor to disrupt, you know, chemical cues and trails and stuff with the army ants. So they're in like complete disarray from a war logistic kind of point of view. And then they reform the shield again, like a Spartan shield. And they keep going through this until the army ants are freaked out, leave. And so they have this very fascinating coupling between this very extreme morphology of their head and body sizing proportionality and the behaviors that they use to carry out this like tank-like head and how they use them as a group. So they don't use the they don't use that head as sort of a, I mean in the soldier sense it's a, it's a little bit misrepresentative more it's more of a 
defense than attack? Or is it also attack? I mean, presumably they've got giant mandibles too. Yeah, exactly. So that's like a novel observation in a defense sense, as you're describing. But yes, they definitely use their mandibles to attack as well. Uh, I've worked with, you know, I don't know maybe 30-ish different species of Fidoli in keeping colonies in the lab over the years. And, uh, you know, they each have their own little nuances and everything. But if you give them some fresh food, you'll see the workers come, find the food, and they'll go back to their uh, their colony tubes or however you have them set up in your lab environment. And they'll recruit soldiers to come attack the food, process the food, use their mandibles. If it's, say it's a live insect, use their mandibles to attack. Say it's an, a cricket, for example. The workers will come, will pull all the legs to the sides, basically to like hold it down. And then the soldiers will come you know, waltzing in after all the hard work has been done by the minor workers and basically start you know, using their giant mandibles Shopping to process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, let's, let's move now to some of the developmental events that underlie the origin of, of these casts, and especially the soldier and the super soldier casts. So a lot of this hinges on these things called wing discs, which are an important sort of developmental thing inside insects that go through a complete metamorphosis. So maybe just tell us, what are, what are these discs and what specifically is a wing disc? Okay, so... Um... Hollow metabolous insects, which undergo, as you had uh, alluded to, complete metamorphosis from a larval form to an adult form, they have what are called imaginal tissues that are ultimately patterned and grown into the adult structures that they have. So there are these populations of cells that uh, communicate with each other and form an axis, you know, what will become the proximal distal aspects of the appendage or organ, dorsal ventral, anterior posterior, so on and so forth, just like our limbs are patterned, for example. But uh, once they're done growing and patterning, They'll undergo metamorphosis, and then you'll see the adult structure come out on the other end of metamorphosis. So you'll have, say, imaginal discs or imaginal tissues, these populations themselves that can give rise to, say, the wings of in- these insects of, say, the winged queens, for example, and can give rise to, you know, the legs of these insects, their eyes, their antenna, so on and so forth. So they're very important populations of cells that form in the larval stage that uh, basically pattern and grow into the adult appendages, for example. So a lot of adult insects that are holometabolous have wings, and those wings come from wing discs. Why are those so important in ants? Well, so there's a couple ways to get at it, but one thing that's really striking about ants is that at the origin of ants, you have a winged cast and a wingless cast, right? So all ants, all 15,000 plus species of ants, all the worker cast, it's universally wingless. That's a universal property of ants. So the origin of what is called wing polyphenism, or the ability for that wing imaginal tissue that you're mentioning to either develop into a wing in the adult, or to either not be developed at all or be halted or something along the developmental process to give a wingless worker individual in an adult form, is a hallmark to the entire origin of ants, right? And there's some explanations of why that can be beneficial. You know, it prevents workers from getting wings and dispersing and flying and starting their own thing. It increases, you know, density within the colony, you know, constraints to keep them in more social interactions and go on from there, like a springboard to kind of catapult them to evolving more social connections, interactions amongst each other in a colony. So that winglessness is a huge distinction in cast and ants that you see. So like in Fidoli, for example, there's so the group that the paper that you're mentioning is focused on, and a lot of my work is focused on, you have the winged queen, for example, and then you have the wingless cast, typically, say, a wingless, a wingless worker, but in this case, there's wingless minor workers and a wingless soldier cast. So um, wing differences is a huge thing in the ant world, and those tissues develop properly into wings in the queen, but there's a bit of more nuance and mystery when it comes to 
understanding why workers and soldiers are wingless. Mm. So I, I think this gene called vestigial comes into play here, but can you connect those dots for me? Because like you, you referred earlier to this allometric kind of thing, and on the show many times we've talked about allometry, so I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with that. But I couldn't quite wrap my head around how you end up with spatial variation and expression of this gene leading to these allometries, because what's coordinating the location of expression? So basically what you have here is these two endpoint phenotypes, being winged or being wingless, right? And if you go back over a century, there was the first descriptions of when you dissect open the larvae of individuals that would grow up into a worker caste, for example, they have what are rudimentary wing imaginal discs. So there are these tissues, these populations themselves, they're in the homologous location of where wing discs would form, say, in the queen, developing a queen larvae. But when they go through metamorphosis, they don't become a wing. So you have these rudimentary structures that uh, transiently develop and then disappear. And so now bring it to, you brought up the gene vestigial. So what we wanted to do was we, along with some other several pieces of evidence that we can maybe touch on later, that basically got us to this point, cutting to the chase that maybe these rudimentary structures that start to develop and then go away, maybe they might have more of a role than we once thought because uh, one key thing that we notice is that you see the correlation of the elaboration of the growth of this transient tissue happening a lot wherever you see the independent evolution of an ant group that has a soldier cast. And so we thought, okay, well, let's let's go about trying to test the function of this tissue. And now coming to your, the gene that you mentioned, vestigial. So this is a gene that's known from the fly literature. It's you know one of the first genes that Thomas Hunt Morgan, one of the fathers of genetics as we know it today, vestigial was one of the earlier mutants that he was describing. Fascinating thing about that is that unlike, say, you know, different pigmentation of eyes, for example, it literally has no wings. Its wings are gone. It's like a, a flightless fly, essentially, right? And um, fast forward many decades, lots of research has gone into understanding what that, that gene does and its role in a cell molecular genetic context. And so basically, people have found that it's both necessary and sufficient for initiating and carrying out wing development. And so what we wanted to do is maybe that's a target because we wanted to see, is there a way that we can molecularly ablate or destroy that rudimentary tissue in the developing soldier that has this really big rudimentary structure that have grows and proliferates really fast and then dies and goes away to target it specifically without affecting any other tissue at the same time. So first we saw that its expression is unique to the rudimentary wing disc in the same way it's unique to the queen's wing disc. So it gives you so a target you for disruption. It, it gives you a target. So, so specifically you used RNA interference to interfere with the expression of vestigials. So can you give us like a 30 exactly. second primer on RNAi? Absolutely. So there's a, there's a few ways to, t- to use an RNA interference approach, but basically our cells have machinery that process RNA molecules into microRNAs and sRNA molecules and from plants to, to humans, essentially. It's this machinery that can, instead of turning uh, RNA molecules or messenger RNA molecules into uh, transcripts into proteins uh, through translation, can actually be used to have their own ability to regulate gene activity and so on and so forth. But basically, in a synthetic world, in the molecular biologist toolkit world, you can hijack that system, essentially, and activate it by injecting into tissues double-stranded RNA. So our cells don't typically have double-stranded RNA that float around and aren't targeted by some surveillance system, like the one I was just describing for microRNAs. And so if you inject double-stranded RNA of a fragment that is that gene vestigial, the cell's machinery of the ants will detect that, chop it up into smaller fragments, and then process it such that they become basically little molecular bullets that can go target the transcript of vestigial that is being transcribed by wing cells in that developing larvae. 
and lead it to its degradation and prevent it from being translated. So you inject this RNAi, you're interfering with vestigial, and what happens to the wing disc? Yeah, so we micro-inject them, larvae, at a key stage where soldiers are just starting soldier development. We can see that they're just barely, if not on the same size as the biggest larvae that would become a minor worker. But you can look at other characteristics of the larvae and see, oh, it's still developing, like distribution of fat cells and many other things, the color of the gut of the larvae and, and several other markers, morphological, visual, visible markers that we can use to say, oh, it's now just starting the soldier development pathway. And as that's happening, it's just initiating now the development of this rudimentary wing disc. Because unlike the queen, where she's starting to grow that wing tissue right from the beginning of larval development, soldiers only start doing that in their last instar if they produce a high level of a key growth hormone called juvenile hormone. And if it passes the threshold, they'll go on to soldier development. And so we targeted this very precise stage to say like, okay, if we try to destroy this tissue, perturb this tissue right as it's starting to get going, what might happen? And so we micro-injected larvae at that stage. And then we let them go through metamorphosis and when looked at them and tried to see what might happen, what phenotypes might arise. So what I think is the coolest part of this paper, there are many elements, but my absolute favorite part is back to the superorganism idea, that the regulation of this whole phenomenon has, it, it's a socially mediated process, right? It's either through nutrition and the juvenile hormone that you just mentioned, or what I thought was even more compelling, pheromonal influences, right? So can, can you talk a little bit about those two scenarios? Yes. Oh, I'd love to. So the result of that RNAi injection and targeting that tissue is that when you dissect over the larvae, that disc is gone, okay? So it affected it. And when you look at the metamorphosed individuals, those soldier-destined individuals, their heads and body sizes are completely perturbed. So you completely affect the head-to-body allometry scaling properties. And we were shocked by that. Like, this is the property that got, you know, the hallmark of this whole group, a soldier cast that has this disproportionate head size to their body size. We perturb it by messing with this tissue we thought was completely useless for 150 years since it had been described, right? We thought that was super cool that it can potentially control the allometry and the development of soldiers. Now, coming to what you just mentioned, when we saw that, and we demonstrated with other methods, we also cauterized that tissue, physically ablated it. Like, you know, you go into a dermatologist's office and they like, you know, you got a mole, you got a zap, the same kind of method, although, of course, with a really precise probe. And we found the same thing. So now coming to pheromones, as you said, when we saw this, but when we scratched our heads, like, what are other instances where you have the regulation of a soldier cast? Yes, we are very familiar with nutritional control of production of juvenile hormone that crosses a threshold that can make the larvae develop into soldiers, right? But uh, in the 1980s, Diana Wheeler and Fred Nyhout did pioneering work in species of Fidoli, like the one we worked with. They tested this idea that it had a longer history in the ant literature where if you have these Fidoli ants and you ha- they're under attack, there's competitors, you generate more soldiers in the colony. So you increase the ratio of soldiers to workers in the colony because typically there's like 5 to 10% that are soldiers to the 90, 95% that are minor workers. They're very costly to make soldiers. They're hyper-specialized. So you want to keep this ratio, this social demography ratio. But when you produce a lot of soldiers to deal with competitors, predators, so on and so forth over time, when they're gone, when that queue is gone, you want to recalibrate the colony so that they have the homeostatic level of that ratio, that default ratio. And I use homeostasis again as a as a word to allude to that superorganismal regulation, the colony acting like an organism, right? Except it's social demography instead of like homeostatically regulating, you know, differentiated cell types or something. And so they basically suppress developing larvae from becoming future soldiers so that now the next gen that are overlapping generations with each other will contribute to the workforce so that 
they're not all, you know, this high level of soldier that being produced. And they did experiments that basically demonstrated that there must be some kind of pheromone that is actually inhibiting when there's high density of soldiers present, they're producing a soldier inhibitory pheromone that blocks the development of future soldiers. We're thinking like, oh my goodness, like how cool would it be if we actually replicated those uh, social demography ratio changes in the lab and see, does it affect that rudimentary wing disc in developing soldiers? Something that we now know is a developmental mechanism that influences what casts you become. And so that's what we did. We raised uh, larvae that were soldier destined with different proportions of soldiers. So say 100% soldiers raising them versus say 100% minor workers as two extremes, for example. When you dissect the adults, as Diana Wheeler and Fred Nile had described, were smaller, although we now describe their allometry. They did affect the allometry scaling and everything. And yes, it did. And it blocked soldier development. And we dissected open the larvae and it affected their wing discs in the exact same way that our RNAi and our ablation experiments were doing. And so it really seems that, as you said, there are both positive and negative social interactions that generate positive nutritional, for example, cues that can produce hormones like juvenile hormone to get them to go on to become soldiers, but also negative social interactions that through inhibitory pheromones that can suppress individuals from becoming soldiers to, again, keep this fine balance of that ratio, that social demography. Wow. It's such an amazingly cool system. That's that's really neat. It's nice that you connected all those dots at multiple levels of organization, too. It's an impressive system that way. Let me stop here and summarize this, as I understand it uh, at the moment. And, and I just want, I want to say how, how bizarre I think this is. So we have a couple of casts of soldier ants and minor workers, and their morphologies are controlled by, to a large degree, wing discs. They don't have wings, but they have these sort of onziate wing discs during development. And so what we have is almost like, we've been using this word vestigial to refer to a gene, but it's almost like we have a vestigial organ, this, this wing disc that arises during development, does something really profound and then disappears and never makes a wing. So, so how yes. amazing is that? Right. So basically it's acting as the signaling hub. So the one thing I didn't mention when we we're talking about imaginal discs is they have, like our organs during development, ways to communicate with other organs to ensure their development, which at times can be asynchronous, how they're growing and patterning, are all in check at the end of development so that when you are born or when you go into metamorphosis, we're talking about insects, all your organs are ready to go. Things are coordinated. And so basically this tissue is sending off some kind of signals and there are precedents for signals like that in imaginal discs and fly research, for example. There are, there's an insulin-like peptide that can be secreted by this tissue that can influence developmental timing and how long development happens. And in soldiers, they develop for longer, so on and so forth. And, hence. and so it, future work is definitely set on trying to figure out what are these signals that these tissues that in this transiently developing structure that appears, pops up, and then goes away, just disappears. What signals it might be emitting to the developing head and other soldier-specific morphologies to influence its growth, to coordinate its growth, along with the growth of the whole system. So there are there are clues based on the fly work, but it's really it's truly a Pandora's box. There's a lot to be studied about. What is the signal? How is that re signal received? And how does that influence the receiving tissue? It is super fascinating that this structure we thought was totally useless. Not only is it governing the development of the key phenotype, the soldier cast in this group, but it's doing it in this crazy interorgan way, interorgan signaling way, uh, when it's in that transient developmental process. And somehow it's able to interpret the social environment through inhibitory pheromones, which is, by the way, a whole other crazy 
element of this paper. And, you know, when we were trying to figure out the title of this paper, we had a hard time because there were a lot of major unexpected findings that we had as we were going through this roller coaster of a ride. Yeah, but that's a that's a good problem, right? If you have so many cool results, you have many alternative titles. I would like to have that problem. Yeah, I, I yes, I'm with you. Well, cool. So, Raji, thank you so much for the chat. Um, we're, I'm becoming a little bit sensitive to your time, so we want to broaden out a little bit and then give you some space to sort of hit things that, that you haven't done yet. But one more sort of big picture question. You write at the end of the paper a couple of, of lines that I thought were so punchy. And, you know, I, I love that kind of provocative, getting people in their systems to think about these kinds of things. You say first that rudimentary organs might acquire novel regulatory function to facilitate adaptive evolution. And then you allude to similarly that these organs are storing some sort of ancestral developmental potential. Do you have examples in other systems where we know that this is the case, something that's unrelated to wing discs altogether, maybe something that's not even in an insect? So in terms of the ancestral developmental potential part, the second part of your question is, so it links back to a science paper from 2012 that we did where we showed that the super soldier cast has not only independently evolved, but actually is likely an ancient feature of the group of Fidoli, you know, of a, over a thousand. It's independent. It's kind of flickered this recurrent phenotype across to have a super soldier cast. And they have more elaborate wing discs. And I'm not, I won't get into the details, but it seems like basically by reactivating this latent super soldier developmental potential or pathway, you're able to potentially reactivate those phenotypes in the wild and then have natural selection act upon it. And that could explain the re-evolution of this phenotype across the group. And at the time, we were talking about at the level of hormones. Juvenile hormone is very important for making a soldier versus a worker. But we found that actually there's an additional switch to make a soldier versus a super soldier. And that you can actually reactivate that dormant switch in species that don't have super soldiers. You can actually, at very uh, special time in development, late in development, you can reactivate a super soldier phenotype in species that don't have them. And that was actually inspired by findings we had in the wild in Long Island, where we found in a species that uh, the Abu Flab had studied for years that doesn't have a super soldier cast. We found these anomalies. They, they were these massive soldiers. We looked at them more carefully in the lab, and they looked like what we thought were these huge anomalies in terms of their head and body size. They look just like these species, the, the super soldiers. So they're like super soldier-like anomalies. And we developed a system to reactivate in every species that we treated with hormone, we were able to reactivate this dormant ancestral developmental potential to make a super soldier phenotype. And now fast forward to 2018, shedding completely new light on that 2012 work is that when we did those reactivations, we would actually reactivate the wing imaginal disc to be super soldier-like wing imaginal disc too. It's only now in 2018, it's a nature paper that we realized like, man, wing discs have, have this role. And Fidolia obtusa spinosa, where soldiers have just one pair of wing rudimentary tissue, the super soldiers have two pairs and they're way more elaborate in growth. And that might be the way that not just how the hormones can actually instill and initiate the growth of that tissue to lead to that elaborate allometry. So that's like ancestral developmental potentials in ants, how you can reactivate it with these rudimentary structures, right? Now, more generally, there are examples of rudiments across plants and animals. You know, if we're talking about humans, for example, you can think about the webbings that happen, interdigital webbings that happen between our digits and the development of our ha hands and feet. You can think about the tails that we have, you know, during fetal development that regresses. You can think about our nautichord. So the nautichord gives rise to the, uh, the spinal vertebral body in us, but uh, in many other vertebrates, it actually persists. But in us, it's kind of a vestige. But it actually signals the formation of the neural tube. Now, what's really fascinating in this context 
is it really pushes the limit of what how those signals can be. So in that case, it's it's really neighboring tissues. It's like paracrine type signaling. In our case, it's like hormonal interorgan that are distant, right? It's an endocrine, endocrinological scale of signaling. And so it, it really opens the door. All of these rudiments I described to you in humans, do these tissues actually have properties to make factors that can signal more at more longer distant ranges to influence the development of other organs and other tissues? I think that's a very important uncharted question to answer in the future. So there's lots of rudiments. I can go on and on about how many rudiments and vestiges and some little bits that carry on in the adult, like say spurs and pythons and other things that you see in adult structures that are a little bit remnants of an ancestor, but that very elaborate developmental process that before it goes away and in development, what does it do? I think now they might play novel regulatory roles for us to now investigate further. It feels like these, these rudiments, even if, in some lineages, they give rise to full-fledged morphological phenotypes in juveniles or adults that maybe in all lineages they're retained because they assume these sort of important uh, you know, developmental signaling roles. So they become sort of irreplaceable, right? They, they can't be gotten rid of. Is that, is that a fair way to... Well, so that's a new possibility to entertain. Like how, how much can you really lose something? And, you know, when you think about loss of characteristics, loss of eyes, loss of, uh, of limbs, you know, whether you say you're talking about snakes or say lizards that have lost their pentadactyl ground plan of their, of, their, of their appendages or their loss of limbs completely, how much do they really lose the underlying mechanisms and tissues and everything? Yeah, they might completely degenerate them. They might retain some. Well, before retaining some of those developmental processes, do we even think that mattered at all? Or it's just an idiosyncratic process of development? Well, now it's a new perspective. Maybe they might have some regulatory involvement, and that might explain why they can persist. And more importantly, it could explain how you can have a phenotype, whether it's through plants and animals, that is a recurrent phenotype across phylogeny that flickers, essentially. You know, And you're thinking like, well, is it you're reinventing the wheel every time? Or in this case, you're activating. It's being held dormant through these other regulatory potential uses in transiently during development. And you can reactivate and elaborate it more so that you can basically re-elicit or reactivate that dormant phenotypic potential to make adult structures that were long lost in an ancient ancestor. Well, it seems like we need to update the dictionary definitions of vestigial. I mean, this is a completely different connotation <laughs> than I think we usually mean with vestigial. Well, hey, Raji, thank you so much for being on. Um, the last question that, that we pose to guests is just to sort of give you the floor. And is there anything that you wanted to make sure to bring up that we didn't give you the chance to say? Uh, well, first off, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's quite an honor. You've had amazing guests over over the past episodes that I look to as heroes in the field and inspired my work. I guess you, you hit on all the key spots of that work that we were talking about today. Um, I think really the future, there's a lot of amazing promise. There's more questions than answers that are generated by this work. A lot of it was unexpected, which is beautiful about research. And I think serendipity is something that, you know, don't be shocked and surprised by when it comes to you in a negative way. Embrace it. But again, uh, you know, ants are awesome. Everyone should study ants. I'll just plug that at the end. <laughs> if you want to make ants bigger or smaller like Ant-Man or, you know, give them, you know, super soldiers like Captain America and their super soldier program and the Avengers, come join an ant lab like mine and you'll we'll do all kinds of cool <laughs> Frankenstein experimental biology and tie it to the natural history of these animals. All right. Well, when you work that out, we'll have you back on. You can let us know about your Ant-Man super soldiers. That, that'll be pretty fantastic. Raji, thank you so much. It was really great talking to you. The pleasure is mine. Thank you, guys. Take care.
Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't, well, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demry and Brad Van Periden for producing the episode. Thanks also to interns Dana De La Cruz, Daniela Garcia Almeida, Kayla McCain, and Kyle Smith for helping produce the episode. Keating Shimeri produces our fantastic cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear and Tieran Costello. <laughs>